We are in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I didn't write down the page number if you're using one of those blue Bibles. Anybody have it? They can give a shout out. 945. 945 for using those blue Bibles. <clears throat> hey, beloved, the, uh, the subject matter is, is rather complex this morning. So what I want to do is just open with a word of prayer. Can we do that? Father in heaven, you have given us your spirit, we who are your children. You have placed your Holy Spirit inside of us, and your Holy Spirit helps us not only understand your word, but believe it. Father, I pray that he would do that work this morning, that even though these things might be difficult, that we would accept them, that we would come under them, and that we would find them to be what they truly are, which is glorious. Father, help us. Help us to our minds to be clear this morning. Help us not to be distracted. But might we focus in on your word and be blessed by it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, so as I said, the next few weeks, what we're going to be looking at concerning God specifically, uh, you will, if you've never heard it especially, you will no doubt find challenging. And uh, you may even find it hard to accept, okay? But I want you to know that throughout the ages, Christians have struggled with the subject matter that we find in in chapter 9 that we're going to look at this morning, they've struggled with it. They've wrestled with this idea. And the subject matter is the subject of election. The subject of election. Not that one that we vote in. <laughs> uh, well, some of us. But uh, the subject of, the, of election is this, the reality that God, God, according to His purposes and His will alone, sovereignly chooses some individuals, but not all, to receive his gift of salvation. Did you hear what I said? So if you've never heard that, that might be striking to you. Now some, to soften this or to try to explain it, would simply say this, yes, that's true, yes, God elects, because you can't get away from that, it's clear in the Bible, But the way he does it, the way he determines who he elects, is he looks down the corridors of time. In other words, he looks into the future. He sees who will believe. And if they believe, he chooses them. So then, we choose God, and then he chooses us. Beloved, the Bible doesn't teach that. That's the first problem with that. And there's more problems with that, which... I'll address as we work our way through chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11 here in this section. But the Bible doesn't say that. We choose God because he first chose us. This is exactly what really the same thing that the Apostle John says in his letters, where he says we love God. We love God. Why? Because he first loved us. And he's speaking to Christians there. The only reason anybody ever comes to a position of loving God is because God has sovereignly loved them first, and specifically in a saving way. So listen, let's work through this, okay? 
But I'll just say this, apart from the sovereign and merciful choice of God, this is what election, election means, apart from the sovereign and merciful choice of God, no one would be saved. No one would be saved. So, before I read the text, I want to give you basically a big picture, all right? I want to kind of tell you what we're going to look at up front, and then I want to look at it with you, and then I'm going to tell you again what we just looked at, kind of like that idea of method of teaching. So, uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 5, and I explained to you, excuse me, sorry, I explained to you that in them we discover the problem that Paul deals with in the verses that follow in chapter 9. And that is the problem of Jewish unbelief, Jewish unbelief or the rejection of Jesus Christ by the majority of the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. That is the problem. Why would that be a problem? Why would that be a problem at all? Well, we talked about this last week, but first, the irrevocable promises or blessing and salvation that God made to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, those were promises that were inextricably linked or inseparably linked with the Messiah. With the Messiah. Do you understand? So the promises God made to the nation were connected to the Messiah. You don't have the promises without the Messiah. You with me? Okay. Who is that Messiah? Now, that's right. We know that, right? And Paul, along with the other apostles, that's exactly what they said. They taught and preached, by the way, from the Old Testament scriptures to prove it, they taught and preached that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. But we know that the majority of the Jews refuse to believe that and have. And so... That's the problem. In light of that, God's word or the things God said concerning Israel, in particular, his promises to them, since they, have, they were connected to the Messiah, okay, have apparently failed or been frustrated because the nation, by and large, was unwilling to believe the gospel or embrace Jesus as the Christ. And now listen. If someone were to insist that it is impossible that God's word could fail, and it is, beloved, it is impossible, then what would they make of the fact that the one Paul keeps insisting is the Messiah was overwhelmingly rejected by the nation of Israel? That's the problem. Well, one might simply say that in light, they look around, they go in light of, light of the nation's unbelief, Jesus must not be the Messiah. That's the conclusion they would have to reach since they know God's word cannot fail. Because if he was the Messiah, then they would think the nation would have believed because all of God's promises to the nation cannot fail and are linked to the acceptance of the Messiah. You see the issue? Okay. But Jesus is the Messiah. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see the problem? That's the problem. But it's a problem that's resolved. And and yet he was by and large rejected by the Jewish people. So we find now in verses 6 through 13 that in spite of widespread Jewish belief, Paul, who believed and preached that Jesus was the Messiah, 
was beaten for this fact, was imprisoned and finally murdered for this belief, right? He believed, we know he believed it. Insist, he insists that even in spite, in light of that, God's word to Israel has not failed. But again, how can that be? How can that be? Well, in part, beloved, and he takes three chapters to really just address all of these issues, but in part is because, listen, it is because of the doctrine of election. It is because of the doctrine of election, at least in part. It is because God never promised or intended that every single Jew or Israelite throughout history would be saved or be the recipients of his promises. Rather, according to his purpose, he has sovereignly chosen or selected some within the nation or a remnant of Israel to be the recipients of his promised salvation and blessing. And Paul sets out to prove that by referring back to two examples in the Old Testament, specifically his sovereign choice of Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, not Esau. And what these examples show, beloved, is that God works according to the principle of election. He, for reasons known to him alone. Did you hear that? Reasons I do not know. For reasons known to him alone, according solely to his purpose and will, chooses some and not others. And we can see this principle at work with the nation of Israel. Because God has chosen some within the nation, but not all, or every Jew, to be the recipients of his glorious salvation. Which explains, listen, which explains why Jewish unbelief while it absolutely broke Paul's heart, and we looked at that last week, it was not at all consistent with God's word or his promises to Israel. God, for his glory, had sovereignly determined that throughout history he would save a remnant, a remnant from within the nation of Israel. And to them, to them, his word or promises would be fulfilled all according to God's sovereign plan and timetable. Timetable. Now, someone might say this. Initially, when they hear such things, they might say something like this. This doctrine of election, pastor, this doctrine of election that God chooses some and not others, you know what? That doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound fair. Well, Paul anticipates that objection and others and he addresses those in the verses that follow. But we're going to deal with that next week, actually in the next couple of weeks. So I want to say this to you right now. If this is the first time you're hearing these kind of things, they've always been here, and they're not new. The church has wrestled with them for years, but they're here. But you've got to hear everything. Don't jump to conclusions without hearing the whole story. Would you do that for me? Okay? So... Let's read the text, and for some context, what I want to do is just read from verses 1 through 18. We're just covering 6 through 13. We've covered 1 through 5 already. We'll pick up after 13 next week, but I just want you to see the context. All right, let your eyes 
focus in on the Word of God, and let's read it this morning. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul, these are his words, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jewish people. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and he quotes from the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, that is God, and Sarah shall have a son, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's some heavy stuff, beloved. I've recommended a book to you before when we were in chapter 8 and we were talking about the issue of God's foreknowledge. I'm going to recommend it to you again. It's called Chosen by God. The author is R.C. Sproul. I found this to be, I read this many years ago, early in my Christian life. I found it to be very helpful for me as I was wrestling with these issues. And I wrestled with them for a long time. I now understand, I'm not going to say I fully grasp it all, I don't, but I now fully accept it. And I find pleasure in it. But it took me a long time to get there. So I recommend that resource to you. Now let's, uh, let's look at the outline. So this morning, it's simple. We're going to consider two examples of God's sovereign electing activity. Okay, So that we might understand simply what we've been talking about. Why the rejection of Jesus Christ by the majority of the Jewish people in no way means that the word of God has failed. In the first Sovereign, electing activity of God 
will be God's sovereign choice of Isaac, not Ishmael. We're going to discuss this. And second, God's sovereign choice of Jacob, not Esau. All right, you ready? All right, let's look back at verse 6. Good. Paul says this, just reminding you, we've already read this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, listen, how can you say that, Paul? How can you say that? Because on the surface, as we've been saying, it appears that the word of God concerning Israel has failed in light of the fact that the Jews have rejected their Messiah, and to the Messiah are attached all the promises that God made to the nation. Paul, you need to back that statement up. So, Paul tells us, he tells us why. He knows the word of God has not failed concerning these circumstances, these historical circumstances. And here it is, latter part of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel, from not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Beloved, that is a significant statement. Hopefully you'll understand why here more in a moment, but it's a significant statement. What does it mean? (laughs) What does it mean? Listen, the standard view or understanding in, held by Jews or the Jewish people in Paul's day was that every single person who physically descended from Israel, which by the way, Israel is a name. It's also a nation, but it's a name. It's a name that God gave to Jacob. He renamed Jacob Israel, and from Israel would come Sons, and those would be the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? He was the heir, this Jacob, of Abraham and Isaac, to whom Abraham, the promises of God, were made. But the Jews believed by nature of their birth alone, they were entitled to the promises God made to the nation, which would include salvation, okay? In other words, you know, I hear people say this all the time, sadly. I ask them, how did you become a Christian? They go, oh, I was born a Christian. Well, no one's born a Christian, beloved, but they, in a sense, believe they were born into salvation if they were born into the Jewish line, into the nation of Israel. But Paul is refuting that idea. He's refuting it by insisting that Listen, not all who are descended from Israel, he's referring to the biological sense or by birth or ethically speaking, not all who are racially Israel really or truly belong to Israel. That's what what he says. And by that he means in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual sense, or that is to say that They are not all true Israelites, not all. And therefore, not all of the descendants of Israel would automatically have a right to the promises God made to the nation. In fact, you could say that the real Israel, the real Israel, the true Israel, is contained within the natural or ethnic Israel. That's what Paul is saying. So then, Based on Paul's statement, the fact that many Jews rejected the Messiah would not mean that the word of God has failed, because while it was true that the Jews who failed to believe were descendants of Israel, it could also be said 
that all those who did or have rejected Christ did or do not truly belong to Israel because they were not all true Israel. I took a long time to write that all down because this is complex. So uh, I really wrestled with this, trying to simplify it as best I could, but it's still complex. One writer adds this. The real Israel is the Israel of faith. Those who had faith in God and his promises in his word. That's the true Israel. And throughout all of the history of Israel, there has been faithless Jews. It isn't anything just common to the time of Christ. There has always been a nation of Israel, but within Israel, there has been the true Israel, those who truly belong, who belong. Okay, but why? Listen, why would there be in Israel within Israel, if, if you say it that way, and, you, and people do? Why would there be an Israel Within Israel. Well, it is because of the electing purposes of God. It is because of the electing purposes of God. Listen, from within the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, some were chosen by God to be the true Israel or to be the blessed recipients of his promises and salvation. And the rest were not. We're not. Now, again, that might be hard for us to accept or totally understand, but listen, listen to me. Just because something is hard to understand, get our minds around, or even to accept, that in and of itself doesn't make it untrue. Are you with me? That in and of itself doesn't make it untrue. But it does, in this case, what I just said, help us understand why then many Jews failed to believe. It helps us understand that. And why some did. A remnant. Sovereignly chosen by God. So to support what Paul said in verse 6, okay? We're just following the text. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel or are the spiritual Israel or not every Jew is a member of the true Israel within the nation of Israel. To support that statement, because it's a big one. Paul draws upon two important examples of governs, governs, wow, God's sovereign. That's a new word. We make up words up here sometimes. Govern, God's sovereign. God's sovereign electing activity concerning the nation of Israel that are recorded in the Old Testament. Okay. By the way, just a note. I'll probably say it again. Of all the Old Testament quotes Paul has in all of his writings, one-third of them are found in this section, Romans chapter 9 through 11. Paul is going to build his argument, not based on, hey, this is a new idea. He's going to show them, this is the teachings of our scriptures. This is the teachings of the Old Testament. So pretty significant. And the first sovereign electing activity, as we've already seen or I've already said, it's in the outline, is God's sovereign choice of Isaac, not Ishmael. Okay? You still with me? Thank you. Great. Because now we're going to even go, we're going to just dive in deeper, all right? Look back at verse 7. And not all, and not all, here he's going to give the reasons why he just said, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
Do you remember when the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were arguing with Jesus, and they said, hey, our father, our father is Abraham. I don't know what your problem is, but our father is an Abraham. And Jesus acknowledged that, but then he said, your real father is the devil. That's, okay, so they were descendants of Israel, but they thought that was enough. But spiritually speaking, they weren't really true children of Abraham. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's do this. And not all our children are Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and then he quotes the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, if you don't know the background story, because that's important, this is why I've said before, the Old Testament, knowing the Old Testament, at least to some degree, is so important before you step into the New Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. Without that knowledge, I will misunderstand many of the things that are being said in the New Testament. So here we go. If you don't know the background story or you're a little fuzzy, let me give you just a little information this morning. We learn from the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In fact, that's a great place to start. Remember I told you to read 9 through 11 of Romans chapter, of Romans chapters 9 through 11? Read that. Okay, read it a few times. I'm going to recommend something else. Read Genesis. Bigger book, but, but read it. You can get through it. I mean, it's a, when I say book, we're talking, you know, it's not like a book. This is a book. It's just one book of this book, all right? Read Genesis because it will give you a lot of information. It will be helpful as we go through this. So in that book, this is what we learn. God chose to make incredible and irrevocable, in other words, they can't be taken back, they're permanent, promises to a man named Abraham, okay? He chose his plan. His decision. He chose this man. The man was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. God drew him out of that. He chose this man. He made promises to him. And according to God's plan, this man would become the great patriarch or founding father of Israel. And according to God, his promise, promises were to be for Abraham and his children or descendants. With me? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Abraham didn't have any children when God made these promises to him. And the wife that he had, Sarah, was unable to conceive. Okay? So after many years of infertility, Sarah, who wanted a child badly, and was probably trying to figure out how exactly are all these promises going to come out if we don't even have any kids. She took matters into her own hands. She took Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant, okay? And she, I'll say it this way, gave her to Abraham as a wife, in a sense, so that Sarah could, according to ancient customs, according to ancient customs, effectively obtain a child through her. Do you get the understanding of what I'm saying? Here, take her, and when she is impregnated, that will be my child, almost like a form of adoption in a sense. If you want to read that, it's Genesis 16. If people watch soap operas, there's no need to watch soap operas. Read the Old Testament. They are way better than any soap opera because they're real, they're true. 
This is the other thing about the Word of God that, you know, I say this all the time. If this was written by man, let me just tell you, they'd leave out all this terrible stuff and yicky stuff, but it's all revealed because it's truth. It's God's Word, the whole story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all there, right? Now, the child's name born to Hagar was Ishmael, was Ishmael. Are, we, are you here so far with me? Good, all right. Now, about 13 years later, and Sarah was still without her own child from her own womb, she was now, by the way, well past the age of childbearing. I'm not making this up. That's what the Word of God tells us. So she's, she's gone, she was infertile, and now she's past that, so, so stuff happened, so now we know she can't have kids anymore. In connection to God's promises to Abraham that he would make Abraham a great nation and multiply his descendants, that's his promise, his purpose, his doing, God causes Sarah, the infertile one, the one who's beyond childbearing age, to conceive a child with Abraham. And they have a son, and his name was Isaac. Isaac. Now concerning these two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, they were both technically children of Abraham, right? Different mothers, same dad. But God told Abraham that it would be through Isaac, not Ishmael, that his offspring shall be named. Now, Abraham had desired that God would grant his promised blessing to his oldest son, Ishmael. But God had other plans. So God spoke these words that we see here in the text to Abraham in response to his reluctance to follow his wife's advice, who now had Isaac and one of the other boy and his mother out of the house. And she said, ban them, send them away. And Abraham didn't want to do that. And God said, listen to your wife. I know, isn't that amazing? I tell men, you should listen to your wife more often. Yeah. Not always, but, you know, more often. Certainly, take everything into consideration. Your wife's a blessing, right? She's a blessing. So anyway, he wasn't listening, and so God said these words. But the bottom line is this. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, look at verses 8 and 9. This means... So now Paul explains the meaning of what he just referred back to in verse 7, which was that whole historical story. That is, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And, and these are the words that God spoke to Abraham. At that time, when he wasn't listening to his wife, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And that verse, verse 9, emphasizes the fact that Isaac was born according to God's divine purpose and plan. Or as one writer says, Isaac, listen, Isaac is the divine choice, the child of divine choice. Isaac. When you think of him, think of that. He is the child of divine choice. So what is Paul's point? What's his point? It's this. Ishmael was the child 
of the flesh. Ishmael was the child of the flesh. He was a natural child or a child conceived in due course uh, according to natural processes, according to merely human desire. Ishmael came about because of the desire of Sarah. We can see that God was in, these embryon- in this embryonic state of the nation of Israel, he was making distinctions and sovereignly determining who the true descendants of Abraham would be or who would be the recipients of God's promises to Abraham or who the children of God would actually be. And it would not simply be the children of the flesh or the physical descendants of Abraham, but rather it would be, listen, the children of the promise. The children of the promise, or you could say it this way, children born in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Children, listen, who are the result of God's supernatural intervention. Just as Isaac was, just as Isaac was. How did Isaac come into being? Supernatural intervention of God. Or you could say the children, it's the children God has sovereignly chosen, or lastly you might say, or those, or those who are children by divine choice. Divine choice. So listen, Here we go. The illustration of Isaac shows that just as not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, so not all who are descended from Abraham Abraham, are necessarily Abraham's true children. Why? Because, beloved, it is ultimately a matter of God's choice. One writer just says it this way. This kind of wraps it all up in one sentence. To be a physical descendant of Abraham, it's not enough. It's not enough. One must be chosen by God. That's the point. One must be chosen by God. But guess what? Paul's not done. This is where it really gets interesting. And he brings us to the second example now of God's sovereign electing activity. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Jacob, not Esau. In verses 10 through 13, Paul shows us that even when it came to the children of Isaac, Isaac was the child of the promise, but even when it came to his children, God made a sovereign choice there as well. And remember, he is giving these examples, remember, don't forget the context, to support his statement that not all Israel belonged to Israel which explains why Paul says God's word has not failed even in light of all the Jewish unbelief. See, beloved, it shouldn't be surprising that all of the Jews didn't believe. Why? Because we know that all of Abraham's sons weren't chosen as children of the promise, nor all of Isaac's either. That's what's being communicated. Let's look at the text. Romans chapter 9, look at verse 10. And not only so, not only that, what I just said, but also when Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, 
our forefather Isaac, listen, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, and here's the point, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls, she was told, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. All right, let's do this. In Rebecca's womb, there were twin boys. Twin boys, if you don't know the story. Jacob and Esau. The father of these children, as I've already said, was Isaac, the child of promise. The one, remember, who was chosen or selected by God and through whom we now know, historically, as this is happening, Abraham's offspring would be named. And this is all according to whose plan? God's plan. That is very evident. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, God chose Jacob over Esau, declaring that the older will serve the younger. I'll talk about that in a second. The older one being Esau because he was the firstborn, okay? So they were twins, but Esau came out first, which made him older. And that's Genesis 25, 25, if you want to look that up. And so Jacob, listen, Jacob, not Esau, was picked by who? God to become God's, or to become the heir of God's covenant promises to Abraham, to Abraham. So, Abraham, it went from Abraham, it went to Isaac, and now it's to Jacob. Now, the quote in verse 12, that the older will serve the younger, I want you to see that in its context. It's, in, um, it's from the Old Testament. It's in, like I said, Genesis 25. We'll just begin in verse 21. Okay? The Word of God says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Hey, that's interesting. Who else was barren? Who else couldn't conceive children? Sarah, right. So here we go again. Rebecca can't have any kids. So Isaac prays. This is a beautiful answer to prayer, by the way. You see, God, it's wonderful. Just there's so many things there. But he prays, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? There's some kind of battle going on inside. She's like, is it pizza? I don't know what it is, but something strange is going on. So she went to inquire of the Lord. If these children are from the Lord, I don't understand what's going on. And listen to what the Lord said to her. He says, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, you can look at 2 Samuel if you want to write this down. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14. The older did serve the younger. I'm going to talk about that in a second. In the sense that the nations that came from these two men, one was subjected to the other. Well, who are the nations? The nations represented in Rebekah's womb were the peoples of Israel and the peoples of Edom. The peoples of Edom or the Edomites. But the peoples of Israel to whom the promises to Abraham belong would descend from Jacob, not Esau. 
And God, listen, God made that decision and revealed it to their mother, Rebecca. Don't miss this. Before the twins were even born, before they were even born, before, Paul says, they had done anything good or bad. So it was a decision entirely independent of their works or their good or evil deeds. It was entirely independent of all these things. How we might make decisions, I'll choose you because you're the good one. No, the decision was not made based on those things. They weren't even born. And it obviously had nothing to do with birth order. Because Esau was born first, and we don't think so much about birth order anymore, but customarily, the one born first was in the position of preeminence in the family. So naturally, we, if we were going to make the decision, we'd give it to the firstborn, not God. None of that is taken into consideration. God did what he did, beloved, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's the point. What that indicates then is God's purpose of election is not simply a matter of of him choosing one person over another. It's that, but it's more than that. It also means, listen, that God's sovereign choice has no basis in the person themselves or their personal circumstances. That's why Paul's saying all that. Listen, it was before they were born. They had done neither good or bad. It's not according to works. Whether that be works that they would have done or God knew about or works that they did, it's not according to that. But it matters only to whom God calls. God's choice is entirely free, free from any and all human influence. Or you could say it this way, it is made without the compulsion of any influence outside himself. That's why I said earlier, when people suggest, and they have to suggest this because it's not in the word, that God's choice is made on the basis of the human choice to decide then that would mean that God's choice was influenced by their decision. So he's just waiting. So it's not really a choice at all. He's not even free to make it. He has to wait and see if you'll make the choice, and then he makes the choice of you. That's just not what the Bible teaches, and then that would make no sense of what Paul's communicating here. I'm going to, and if you think that, and that is, by the way, what a lot of, Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, do think, and I know that, come back next week, because I'm going to make the point even clearer as we get to the objections. You know, let me just say it now, because in case you don't come back next week. (laughs) Um, If that is the case, if that is the case, if God's decision is based on looking down the quarters of time and seeing him choose someone, or seeing them choose him, then that's all Paul had to tell us. When he got to the end of this thing, instead of saying, is there any injustice with God? Of course not, because his sovereign choice is made on the basis of whether or not you chose him. He doesn't say anything like that. Whether he says, God will have compassion on whom he'll have compassion, and he'll harden whom he wills. And that's when you, you kind of fall down and go, whoa. A uh, whoa. Not sure I like that. 
Okay. That doesn't mean it's not true. One writer says this, the principle that these texts establish is that God's promised blessings are never enjoyed on the basis of what a person is by birth or by works, but only on the basis of God's sovereign choice of that individual. And that is the case with Israel, beloved. Not all Israel belongs to Israel. Why? Because the true Israel of God is not every person born a Jew, but it is limited to those God has sovereignly chosen for himself from within the nation. And this explains, in spite of Jewish unbelief, how God's word has not failed. Because he never promised or intended to save and bless every Jew who ever lived. That's the reality. Beloved, in this way, in this way, it is God alone who gets all the the glory for salvation. Because apart from the sovereign, merciful, and saving choice of God, apart from that, no one would be saved. I've said this to you before, and, and maybe you didn't understand all the implications of what I was saying, but when you stand before the Lord in heaven... No one will say, I am here, I am here because of my smart choice. Now, you do have to choose Christ. You do have to make that choice in order to be in heaven. You do have to respond in faith, repenting and turning from that life that leads to hell to the Lord who takes you to heaven by what he has done on your behalf. Yes, you got to make that choice, but you, if you made it, only made it because God sovereignly chose you. Now, that, that will raise all kinds of questions in your mind. No, maybe. I'm not sure. It, it could. It could raise a lot of... It did. It did for me. Like, wait a minute... If that is true, then what about this? And those are the questions that we grapple with as Christians. And that's why I've recommended this book, because he addresses those things. And I will do my best to address some of those as we move forward. Like maybe one of these questions. Well, if that's true, are my children elect? Huh? Are they chosen? So you start asking questions like that. Well, I'm just going to let you know, God doesn't tell us who he has chosen. Here's what he tells us. Preach the gospel to all, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, so I keep both these ideas in my mind. I keep them both in my mind. I have to. I preach And through the preaching of the gospel, God saves sinners. He read Luke 15 this morning. He leaves those who are the 99. He goes after the one. He does that through the means of his people sharing Jesus Christ. That's how he draws men and women unto himself. 
but those who he draws are those who he has chosen. Finally, the last verse in this section, verse 13. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Which is a quote, again, from... When you see it in um, bracket, um, quotes like that, you can, it's typically an Old Testament quote, okay? It's a quote from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. And this has been explained by Bible scholars in various ways, but in the context, in the context, I think it's best to understand love and hate, listen, love and hate, not as emotions that God felt, not as emotions, because we hear that, we just think of that emotional response. So these aren't emotional responses to Jacob and Esau, but rather they represent actions that he carried out, actions that he carried out. So then listen, God's love for Jacob, it consists in the fact that God chose Jacob to inherit the blessings promised to Abraham. And God's hatred of Esau is best understood in the context to refer to God's decision not to bestow those privileges on Esau. Understood this way, it would be better to use the word rejected instead of hated. God loved Jacob, he chose him, and God rejected Esau. Not based on anything in them, not based on any circumstances surrounding them, just based on his sovereign choice. But does what Paul just said, so now you've got that, right? Does what he just said then make God out to be unjust? See, if you, listen, if you understand it rightly, then that's the natural response that would come out of it. He's saying something that would, that would create that possible objection. So if you're feeling that way, then you've got it right. And look what he says in verse 14 and 15. We read it earlier. What shall we, what shall we say then based on what I just told you? What shall we say then? He chooses one over the other? Just according to his sovereign choice, not based on anything they've done or will do, not based on birth order, not based on the fact that they're even descendants of Abraham or of Isaac. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Can I look at God and go, you're wrong, God, you're wrong. You've done something wrong. Can you imagine? And Paul just says, he's used this before, by no means. No, 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 absolutely not. I'm saying no way. And then he starts explaining again. Well, Paul, I'm not sure I understand. And then he says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, again, if you don't have an Old Testament background, this may not make sense to you, but he says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. God says this to Moses, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's, uh, that's humbling, beloved. God is absolutely the sovereign. He's going to do what he wants with his creation. End of story. And he will do what he wants. He is doing what he wants. He is free from human influence. He doesn't sit up there and wait for us to do this or to do that. 
to determine what he's going to do. He has determined what he's going to do. And so people ask questions like, well, then I don't understand. How's my choice matter? It matters, beloved. Your choice matters. That's included in his plan. So I don't understand all that. Welcome to the crowd. Welcome to the crowd, to the club of those who wrestle with these things. And again, please get the book. It'll be helpful. But next week, we've looked at God's sovereign choice. Next week, we'll see God's... There it is again. Govern again. Where's that coming from? Next week, we'll see God's sovereign choice defended. God's sovereign choice defended. Is God unjust? Absolutely not. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help our hearts to embrace your word. Help us to, to try to get our minds around it. It's, it's these kind of things. They're, they're hard for us to reconcile in our minds. And, and so, Lord, I, I trust that we might be those type of people who, as I've said before, would just let you be you. Uh, that we wouldn't try to force you to be what we think you should be or, or mold you into our image of what we think is right. We're messed up. Our thinking is not always good. And so we have to have our minds washed in the word of God and, and bring it into submission, yield it to what your word says, Father. Even if that's hard for us to get, And so, Father, if it's true, it's true. If it's in your word, it's true. So help us, Father, to come under it. And and as we wrestle with these things in the weeks to come, some who have never even heard these things, Father, uh, may your spirit work in our hearts and our minds. Lord, these, these rich truths concerning you are glorious, but... Some don't think they're glorious, and so they've, they've rewrit them. They have redefined them so that they might be glorious in their eyes. Father, help us not to do that. We know you're good. And we go back to that. We know you're good. We know you are righteous in all your ways. We know you are all wise. May we remember that as we consider this teaching of election. In that, you are good. In that, you are all wise. In that, you are merciful. In that, you are loving. In that, you are just. Help us to see that, Lord. And help us to to realize the implications of this rich doctrine and embrace it as your people, trusting in you in all things. In Christ's name, amen.